from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Uh, well, good evening. Um, thank you for the introduction. That's very kind. I will just add a little bit of uh, colour to that. Um, the um, A25 Squadron. Uh, as many of you will be aware, is a very new incarnation of what is a historically important squadron. Uh, Previously, I was the commanding officer of 702 Naval Air Squadron, which primary focus was the training of aircrew and engineers for Lynx helicopters and Lynx helicopter flights, uh, very much akin to what we are now doing with the Wildcat. We closed 702 Squadron after 37 years last summer, um, where for those 37 years the squadron continued to produce aircrew and engineers to the highest standard for deployment and operations around the world. We reformed and recommissioned 825, a squadron that was born in 1937 in Halfar in Malta, hence the the emblem, Um, but probably more more familiar, uh, familiarly known as the squadron that was involved in Operation Fuller, which is also known as the Channel Dash in 1942 where, uh, unfortunately, many of the aircrew perished um, with the leader and the CEO at the time, Esmond, winning a VC for that action. Um, But it's actually quite fitting, and in my mind, quite important, that we take that historical legacy of a maritime attack squadron forward with our new maritime attack helicopter. The Wildcat, uh, in our mind, is the pinnacle, as described, of small ship embarked aviation, And what better fitting uh, background to have than that historical reflection uh, to take us forward as a maritime attack squadron. Tonight, what I want to do is try and uh, link into that training element um, that has been the same, really, in essence, for 70 years in the fleet air arm. Nothing has changed and everything has changed. And what I'd like to do is just demonstrate by showing that the legacy that we've taught in the Lynx helicopter, and it goes across all fleet air arm helicopters, but principally we're talking about small ship flights here, and how that training challenge translates to me as the CEO of a training squadron, and for those that have been before and will come after me, in developing that training scenario and environment that means people can go forward and operate safely, but effectively in that fairly hostile environment. Clearly we have a new challenge. We have a brand new aircraft, We are still trying to understand and develop the tactics with the aircraft. Every time we explore a new system, we find out something else that it can do. But at the same time, we're trying to train people so that they understand and have the ability to grow the capability of that aircraft over the next 30 or 40 years. We had nearly 40 years out of the Lynx, and the aspiration is to have a similar life from the Wildcat force that we run. And I believe we'll be taking questions after both presentations. So where do we live? Uh, And I believe context is everything here. Um, We work in a familiar environment to many of you and a familiar environment certainly to myself where there is very little margin for error. Why is this important? Well, it's important that when we train people, we train them so that they are comfortable, if you can ever be comfortable, in that environment, but also are able to not just operate your helicopter safely, but fight that aircraft It's not simply good enough to be able to conduct deck landings um, and fly sorties in that aircraft, but have no effect. We are absolutely all about contributing operational effect to our surface fleet. So our challenge, and it's a wicked challenge, is to train aircrew 
and engineers to operate in this environment, but also to go that one step further and to be effective fighting components in that environment. It's all about organic aviation. In the Wildcat Force and the Lynx Force before it, we would train a team, a small team of two aircrew, an observer and a pilot, a small group of engineers, eight in total, sometimes Royal Marines as snipers along for the ride too, um, but we would train them with the ship for several months before that ship would then deploy. And we would then stay with that ship for nine months. And when you look across defence, there are very few other elements of aviation and defence that have that organic, live-in uh, duration and enduring capability that we in the fleet air arm do. Quite often aircraft will embark on capital ships and then deploy ashore to do the fighting or have effect. For us, we are very much in our home, and that home is somewhere that we are contributing to the capability of. So therefore, to go away for nine months with the same ship, the same team, the same aircraft is absolutely key to us. And that is what we focus on when we train our, uh, when we train our young aircrew and engineers. The platform below, one of our new Type 45s, as an organic capability, that's a Russian carrier uh, in the background for those not familiar, um, we, um, we want to enhance the sensors, the ranges and the capabilities of that platform. That is nothing new and has been the same in fleet air and naval aviation for 70 years. The ship can only see and have effect so far. Simple geographical limitations such as the radar horizon, whereas in an aircraft you're limited only by your imagination and the height you can get to and breathe to extend the range of the sensors of that vessel, extend the range of their weapons, either using your own weapons, because we are an attack helicopter, and it's an important point I'll keep coming back to, but also to extend the range of their weapons. And it's understanding their environment so we can contribute to it. And that is a key tenet of what we do in our training environment. We will embark normally one helicopter, but certainly on the bigger decks, the 45s, and hopefully the Type 26 of the future, there'll be space in the hangar to take two aircraft, should you so desire, should you want to surge to that capability. And it doesn't take an enormous amount of imagination to think about where in the world we might want to have that capability that two aircraft and two sets of crews brings you. It's a greater availability through a 24-hour period. Clearly a weakness would be the fact you have one crew and one helicopter and at some point uh, we do like to have a sleep. But clearly with a double aircraft, double man situation, you can keep a 24-hour programme going. So what do we train our aircrew to do? Well, surface warfare is our primary focus. The Lynx helicopter there uh, for the last 40 years has been armed with a sea skewer missile. Um, surface warfare is where we have our expertise and our knowledge and our understanding. And the traditional role of the Lynx would be to extend beyond the horizon of the ship to build that maritime picture and, if required, to prosecute that maritime target. And there have certainly been some great examples in the last 40 years where in conflict the Lynx has done so to good effect, Northern Arabian Gulf for one of them. And that's what we train and that's what we teach. We teach our aircrew to fight the surface battle. We are the only maritime attack helicopter in defence's inventory, the Lynx and now the Wildcat. But clearly a helicopter is a versatile piece of equipment, so we can do subsurface warfare. We carry anti-submarine weapons, depth charges, stingray torpedoes. 
However, as I always like to point out to my ASW friends, over 80% of all submarine finds is done by the Mark I eyeball. So anybody looking out the window makes an effective anti-submarine uh, capable uh, operator. However, that's what I would describe as high-end warfighting. Now, clearly, whilst we train, 80% of our training is towards high-end warfighting, um, conflicts that are world-changing, 80% of our employment, normally a lot more than that, is not high-end warfighting. So we train for the worst-case scenario. However, we spend a lot of our time doing what is effectively termed maritime interdiction operations. Boarding, embargo operations, counter-piracy, counter-narcotics. Many of the things you see and hear about daily on the news, uh, if it's not search and rescue in, in the Mediterranean, it's keeping piracy under check, piracy's moving, counter-narcotics activity moves. As we have effect in one area, their imagination grows. So we train for the high end, but that gives us utility across the spectrum of warfare. And obviously, with a helicopter, one helicopter on a ship that is thousands of miles away from any other form of support, you become a little bit of a jack-of-all-trades, and you start to pick up any other task through the fact that you are trained to a high level to deliver disaster relief, search and rescue work. And the, and the list is only uh, limited by your imagination of what you can do with that aircraft, photography, intelligence work, etc. So we train for the high-end warfighting, but clearly we have utility across the full spectrum. Where do we do it? Well, we can do it anywhere. Clearly anywhere a frigate or destroyer can take us is where we can have effect. Traditionally, we will do homeland defence and training within the UK. We obviously deploy to train as well, theatre-specific training. Um, but the bulk of our work, if we are not working with our key allies, NATO, EU, we can work with other allies at range, and we can have effect engaging with small navies around the world, sometimes only for a few days at a time, sometimes for more enduring periods. The Royal Navy is well-known and well-recognised in many parts of the world, many of which I would never have imagined when I first joined that the Royal Navy would have influence in. But clearly we have our UK's uh, interests overseas, which we continue to engage with, but we also are able to provide that wide area, global reach and reassurance that comes from a military capability, a deployable organic helicopter within a frigate or destroyer. And just as a snapshot... This is what we as a force with our host ships have had um, uh, influence or have uh, been able to uh, have effect around the world within the last 12 months or so. Sometimes this is only one or two days at a time. Sometimes this is a more enduring presence. Sometimes this is a permanent presence. But the utility of a vessel and a helicopter that requires no host nation support is why we train the crews to the degree that we do. And this really is the context of why we expend so much time, money and effort in training those crews to be fully uh, employable across the spectrum of operations. So, what does 825 do? Um, my mandate is quite simple. I need to train the aircrew and engineers to deliver that capability so that we can deliver on the front line. Delivering on operations is what the First Sea Lord demands of all of his frontline units. So I train the aircrew, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but I also train the engineers. So within my squadron, I have young able rates who have only been in the Navy a matter of months and weeks who are learning the first basics of aircraft engineering. 
and we are training them. I have, at the other end of the spectrum, air engineering officers who are doing their final competency or their chartered status, who are sitting boards and learning about engineering management, and I have everybody in between the two. So there is somebody at every rank and rate within my squadron who is in a training post. I obviously have my core instructors, both aircrew and engineers, but what's particularly important is that when we train these engineers, we train them to be independent. I've already described our operating environment. We're one helicopter, two aircrew and eight engineers deployed thousands of miles away from any kind of support or reach back to the UK other than an email or a phone call. So the chief petty officer who we put on that ship as the senior maintenance rating, effectively the air engineering officer in all but name, needs to be empowered and mentored to be able to go away and feel confident that whatever engineering challenge comes up on that airframe, he can deal with it. He can clearly seek advice, but ultimately, advice over the phone or our email is never the same as your flight commander standing and looking you in the face going, how are you going to fix this? So we need to mentor these people. It's not just a case of training them and pushing them out of the door. It's all about growing them in confidence as well as ability. Our aircrew, this isn't the basic trainer, this is, uh, this is just some context here. We, um, as 825, um, 70 years ago, an observer would be trained to use a Dalton computer, the uh, silver implement at the top of the picture there, a compass and a watch, a pen and a chart. And to be honest, that hasn't changed. When the aircrew arrive at 825 Squadron, the pilots have been through basic training, the observers have been through basic training. Pilots have learnt to fly a single-engine helicopter by day, by night, in bad weather, and they arrive confident that they are able to fly a helicopter, albeit a small one. The observers have done basic navigation training at every level, low level, high level, day and night, and they have also done sensor manipulation, sensor operator training. So they know how to use a radar, they know how to home onto a contact, they know how to build a picture over many hundreds of square miles of sea of the surface contacts. But they're also taught the key skills, the basic tenets of airmanship, how to find home in the dark at night when nothing else is working. And for me, this is absolutely key. The most important thing that we do when we train our aircrew is the building blocks that we put in place. We teach our observers basic principles so when everything else fails, they are able to get home, find mum, and still have some fuel in the tank. Without that ability, it doesn't matter how good you are at warfighting, without that ability to safely operate that aircraft, then you're wasting your time. You become a one-shot weapon. So they come out of basic training and they arrive with us at 825, at which point their brains explode. We take the observers and we put them out of a fixed-wing twin-propeller aircraft, the King Air that they operate in Coldrows, into a helicopter in the front in an immersion suit with a helmet on, looking out the window with a plethora of new screens and pictures and information to look at. The pilots, they climb into a twin-engined aircraft that has about five times as much power. It's a lot more twitchy, it's a lot more capable, it's a lot heavier. And they are also at the edge of their abilities and they have a real challenge to move forward. So it is about progressing them through that change that we have to finesse. 
So before I talk a little bit more about how we train them, I just want to give you the context of what has changed and the challenge we now face. At the top there, you have the Venerable Mark 8 Lynx, which is the current uh, frontline aircraft which we are phasing out slowly and replacing with the Wildcat. Now, to look at them, they look pretty similar. However, it's about there that the similarity ends. The airframe is built in a very different way. The, uh, the Lynx, 40 years ago, was built in a very traditional aircraft uh, technique. It's riveted, it's different components. Whereas now we're in a monolithic construction. And the life of the airframe is always, to me, as an operator, a good indication of the company's um, confidence in how long that will last. Lynx normally was around 7,000 hours airframe life. And we've got many Lynx now approaching or having passed that milestone uh, within the force at the moment after 40 years. The Wildcat is a 12,000-hour airframe, so in theory, almost twice as well-built. However, it's in terms of everything that's attached to it that these two aircraft are poles apart. The Wildcat, in every sense, internally, electronically, and sensor-wise, is an absolute generation leap in terms of capability. And teaching people that in a few months is a real challenge. The Mark 8, 35 plus years of surface, uh, surface and anti-submarine warfare, has operational credibility. It was a pl flexible platform. It was well integrated into the host platform, and I'll keep coming back to the fact that it's that integration into the frigate or destroyer that is key for us. And we, as a force, had built a lot of maritime knowledge and experience. We term it now in a military squep, a phrase you may be familiar with, suitably qualified and experienced personnel. Well, our personnel are suitably qualified, and many of them are extremely experienced in this environment. And that's the key part. When other services or other people come to fly to our ships, the key concern we have is, what is their experience in this unforgiving environment? That was the cockpit um, of the Mark 8 Lynx at the, uh, as it comes to the end of its life. There are elements there on the left-hand side of the screen. You can see the radar. The basic radar is 40-plus years old. The processors behind it have been upgraded throughout life. New radios, a small LCD screen, analogue instrumentation. It looks like a legacy aircraft, um, despite the uh, through-life updates that it's gone through. Still a very capable airframe, but very much an old um, legacy cockpit. When you compare it now to what we're operating, we are worlds apart. The pilot still has his primary flight display here on the right, and you always have to keep that up for obvious reasons. However, the other three screens really are where you warfight this aircraft. You now have many more sensors and an ability to integrate sensors. So from a teaching perspective, we're trying to get people to operate maybe a map on one, a radar on another, maybe the electro-optics, the camera, infrared image on another, Maybe you're in a high-threat environment and you want to have your radar warning receiver and your infrared warners focused on a screen directly in front of the pilot. You don't need them because this aircraft is quite clever. If a threat appears, it'll tell you. In the same way as if something goes wrong, the screen comes up to show you what's gone wrong. And what I think this shows particularly well is that instead of a confusing cockpit, we now have the ability for the crew to work as a team and understand what the other person is trying to achieve. And in the links, the pilot would work hard to try and offload some of the effort from the observer in a high-tempo environment. And it was quite difficult to do that, because it was quite difficult to see and manipulate the information. 
whereas now it is a lot more straightforward. And actually, from CRM, crew resource management perspective, we've made a huge um, generational change in how we operate and fight as a pair because we can both now see the information and our situational awareness has improved. So the way we teach has changed from core manipulative skills to how you process and share information within the cockpit as well. We still have the clock, and just out of sight at the top of the screen, we still have an oil floating basic compass. So when everything else goes off, you can bring a Dalton and chart out and hopefully still find mum. Again, that's not changed. Key differences, as already mentioned, is everything. The radar, the electro-optics, communications, airframe performance, the way the aircraft is defended, yeah, state-of-the-art uh, defensive aid suite. It's the first MOD aircraft to get Generation 3, which is a, is a huge uh, a bonus in terms of protection of that aircraft and where you can employ it. But really, it's the radar and the electro-optics in terms of the camera that give us the greatest advantage over the links. And, and it really is a very significant change. Sea Spray Radar um, still has the same name as I had in the links. This is a nominal... Uh, uh, air, uh, slide from when we first brought the aircraft into service. Um, a Lynx radar is limited by its range um, and it didn't matter how high you flew, you were still limited by the aircraft's range. Again, the uh, Wildcat is only limited by your ability to breathe air uh, and the radar is not limited in any way by range and therefore some of the detection ranges on this radar, I will say, are simply phenomenal. Uh, and the radar has many modes. It's a synthetic aperture radar, so teaching aircrew now about how these different electronic radar systems work, how you can steer beams electronically, um, has been a, quite a step change for some of the more senior members of the teaching staff who've had to start all over from scratch. I myself only qualified on the aircraft just before Christmas, and I start teaching on it next week. So, uh, yes, it's, uh, it's quite a challenge to understand the systems. The camera is quite phenomenal. It's both an infrared and a TV camera which clearly has utility by day and by night. And again, some of the um, ability to track, find, identify targets is a quantum leap from what we have seen in the links. And we're hoping with the first flight who deployed last month on HMS Lancaster, we will start to see as she goes around the South America, South Atlantic, some of the uh, tactical data that they will draw back from that. We'll start to see how good this really is. But our initial impressions are it is a very, very capable piece of equipment. Training. <clears throat> we do it in two chunks. Conversion to type, so taking our single-engine helicopter pilot and converting him to the Wildcat, taking our observer from a fixed wing, converting him to a helicopter. And as I've already mentioned, that is all about learning to operate that platform safely and effectively. Navigation, day, night, on night vision goggles, low level, over the sea, using the radar, making approaches to land on a ship in poor weather using the radar. Um, all of those key elements, pilots go away, learn to fly the aircraft, relearn everything they've done before and a few extra components, but in an aircraft that is significantly more powerful, significantly heavier. And for the pilots, the added excitement towards the end of that period, we then give them some deck landing training. And that's always a focus for the teams because it's the first time that we start to work them together to achieve an aim in what is a fairly unforgiving environment. Once they get to the end of that, and they have proved to us that they can safely operate this aircraft, the real meat, in my mind, starts, and that is the learning to warfight. 
And it is the conversion to role that is absolutely key. We take the yearning experienced observer, the yearning experienced pilot, and we put them together as a pair. And then the instructor will sit in the back with no controls and watch the two of them work their way through whatever scenario you have. And it does focus the mind when you realise they're on their fourth trip on their own in an aircraft, when you're sat in the back at 100 feet over the sea at night. But so far, all has gone well. And it's that ended impetus that helps them produce the quality of product that we get. We, build the blo- we put the building blocks in place, and then we go to sea at the end for three weeks, where we throw everything at them at once. And for three weeks, they get a really hard time. We, the staff, will create a scenario, and they take great joy in giving these poor boys and girls a very hard time um, whilst airborne. They build a scenario, they increase the tempo of activity, and the teams respond to it. And at the end of that three weeks, if they've been successful, then they then get their wings. The deck landing training uh, continues. It's a key element of what we do, but we also take the opportunity of having a frigate or destroyer to do some of the other elements that we train for, such as secondary roles. Because again, conducting secondary roles to Yeovilton or to our satellite airfield of Merrifield is great. Procedurally, it's very important. A little bit of winching in Portland Harbour, it's really good training. But it's not until you see the whites of the eyes of your winchman over the deck of a ship at night that you really realise that everything is at stake and the teams really focus on getting it right. It's a fantastic opportunity and a great training uh, environment. And we'll take any deck we can from any profile we can when we work them together. This is a Lynx cockpit. We have yet to do the first um, final course embarkation with the Wildcat students. That will happen towards the end of this year. Some of the other elements which I'll just uh, briefly graze over now as I, as, I, as I wrap up is effectively the capability of this aircraft. As I've said already, we are starting to develop and grow. We don't fully yet understand how far we can drive our tactics. The ability of the radar to do an ISAR image of a, in this case, a, um, a merchant ship at extremely long ranges um, is significant. In, in a Lynx, you would struggle to identify a contact at any significant range by night because your camera only had a limited range and you'd have to fly out towards that target. We have the ability now in a Wildcat to lift off the ship, climb to six to 8,000 feet and just suck in the picture. And after about 30 minutes, land back on and then just have a little look through that information and decide what the command team want to do next. That's an enormous amount of flexibility and information that we just haven't had before. It's taken us two hours at night to build a picture. In the Wildcat, we're able to do that in 20 or 30 minutes. And some of the experiences we're gaining back show that this aircraft will need to be fought differently from a Lynx. And that's going to be our focus now as we use this aircraft on the front line. Looking at an airfield there off of a Google image bottom left, you can see that the radar is able to build an image. Now, Apparently to experts, if you give them four or five images every day for a week, um, they're able to tell you what activity has taken place in these areas. And that can all be fed through. So it is an I-Star asset, and we will continue to develop that capability. All something from one aircraft on one ship. And we even occasionally go over land. One of the significant things here is we can stay outside of territorial waters and have effect over land now. We never could in a Lynx, and to us that is absolutely key, Remain clear of the 12-mile limit. You're not interfering to a nation's activity, but you can keep an eye on them. We still teach naval gunfire support. That's been around for a very, very long time. But we now are able to target effectively and accurately 
and identify a potential foe from range, hopefully without him ever seeing or hearing us. Um, that concludes my part. I believe we're going to go straight into Peter's part next and then we'll take questions on completion. training centre at Yeovilton, but we're actually a supplier into the MOD as a DENS. But our, one of our main partners are Indra, who have supplied the aircrew training equipment, and they're here tonight to sponsor the, this evening's lecture. If I go straight into it, let's put some context on what we're trying to do here. Um, what is the Wildcat Training Centre? How do we fit in to that Wildcat wider training solution. Ah, okay. It's alright, I've got a big, big enough, deep enough voice without using that, but um, we have to work with our colleagues with the MOD. In fact, some of um, Glenn's colleagues are in the building where we're working from. Um, how we're going to design the integrated training to make sure what we're doing on the theoretical side and the synthetic side meet the requirements of the frontline command. And what's that future look like? Glenn's already talked about, it could be here for 40 years, so we have to make sure we keep in step with what they're doing, with what's happening on the aircraft, and how we take that forward. So where are we? We have a, our own architect-designed building, three storeys, at Yeovilton, out at, down in Somerset. If anybody knows Yeovilton, we're right alongside the fire station, just off the main helicopter hard standing. But it is a self-contained unit. Some people call it the university for the Wildcat. But um, it has simulators in there. It has training equipment. I'll go further on into this later on down the line. We are the singular point for all the theoretical training for the Wildcat and the synthetic training, both for the maintainers and for the aircrew. So we, we cover the wide spectrum. We have about 64 courses that we've designed to be able to deliver from this particular building. But it is MOD owned. We just run it on their behalf. Um, DNS contracted us um, to deliver it. However, we're operating it as part of the WIST contract. So it's part of the integrated operational support that we deliver for the whole of the aircraft Training is just one of the pillars that enables us to deliver the whole of the product life cycle. But we are fully integrated into Yeovilton. So my manager that's in Yeovilton reports into the base commander. So we get our security from there. Although we're self-contained within our own building, our building is walked around at night time by the, by the local security people. Our IT... Is done partly by the MOD. We have our own infrastructure for the, with the MOD side, but we tie back into industry on our computers. So we have a dual system 
running inside. Our waste management is done by the station, but our other parts of the building is done by outside agencies like Sodexo, and we have um, other people coming in, to like Carillion, who look after the building on our behalf. But we do equip it um, to meet all the UK mod requirements. If I say security, we have a whole plethora of security arrangements that we have to um, meet, down to even have a double security lock on every single door to allow it um, to meet the security arrangements. If I go on to the strategy for training, we have to meet all our um, MOD requirements from the Joint Service Publications and the strategy that they've laid down for us. But I have to say there is two distinct training philosophies just in the UK MOD, from the Army Air Corps and the REMI, and then for the, the Fleet Air Arm. In industry, we deliver whatever the customer wants, and we have two distinctions of how we train the, the two different armed forces, for want of a better word. If I take the Army in the first instance, the Army Air Corps and the REMI, they like to have equipment courses. So we train the whole range of everything on that equipment course. So it's just in case type of training. So we'll train everything that there is to know for them particular courses. If I take the fleet air arm, they'll do just-in-time training. Well, they'll do a segment of training. Then they'll go away back to the front line and do their training. Then they'll come back to us, do another part of training. Then they'll go back again to the front line. And if necessary, they'll come back and do a top-up course. So they're in a, in a cycle. Uh, I call it the life cycle of training, where they keep rotating round to do the next part of their training that they need to do. Whereas with the army, we do it in a, a one hit, and then they take it all and do everything so they only take the man out of the, the loop on one occasion. It does cause its problems, but it does. we have to make sure we cater for both parts of our customers. However, we can't put any bits, add any bits on that we would like to add on because we've got value for money. Our DES colleagues on the procurement side are constantly scrutinizers to make sure that we're not adding stuff that um, either party wants as that extra little bit. However, even in industry, because we're now delivering training to some of our ab initio colleagues, on both on the engineering side and on the armed forces side, we have to maintain this military ethos, even though we're industry. And that goes down to the fact that my team that are out there, the 30-odd instructors that I have out there, actually wear a uniform. So they're all branded. So our management team have white shirts with Augusta Westland on their arm and our branded whist on their chest. My staff members, my instructors, will wear polo shirts with the same branding. Our aircrew instructors will wear overalls with the same branding. So we, we're there as a part of that military ethos, and we have to brand it even to that, to that level of detail. Quite rightly, as Glenn's already said, we train as we fight. So although we're doing ab initio training, conversion training, recurrent training, everything is about that war fighting. Deliver them for the training bit for starting to get them flying. Deliver them to do the first engineering practice and then take them on to the next stage to deliver the weapons and to deliver the, the, the role conversion. 
So on the synthetic training capability, we start at the bottom of that triangle, where the historic training limit is. But we do take it up to the currency training, and then we take it into the, the maintenance there of competency. But the Wildcat Training Centre takes it to that next step where we're fighting, fighting the machine as well. As part of that fighting element, we've now got so many DAS equipment on this particular aircraft, so many radar bits on the equipment and the imaging that we can do. Um, if I take the deck landing practice that Glyn was talking about, our models are actually go down to sea, at the moment, already go to sea state six. Our intention is to go to sea state eight. Um, but we can already fly the aircraft and land it on there as if it's sea state six. I've actually flown it at sea state five, and it does really feel like you're totally immersed and totally going to land this aircraft on, the, on a ship. So if I go to the actual equipment that we've got there. So if I start with the, our first bit, it's the aircrew training equipment. We have two simulators, in, uh, two flight mission simulators in our hall at the moment. We have a flying training device, which over in Madrid at the moment, which will be uh, delivered in summer. And we have a cockpit trainer. If I say the number one simulator is up and running and we're doing training on it at the moment. That's to a, a version six of the aircraft software. We're currently putting version 8.1 onto the number two simulator. And as, as of today, the MOD started doing the acceptance on that full mission simulator number two. So we intend to go live on that if we're successful um, around the 11th of May for Glynn's students to come in there on the 18th of May. So it's a very tight schedule, we're, we're, but we've got the drumbeats of developing it and making it happen. On the maintenance training equipment, we have two devices, the airframe systems trainer and the weapons and avionics trainer. Um, these training devices have been built from Lynx Mark III airframes that we took from the um, disposal sales from the MOD. We ripped them apart. We put new bits of equipment in them. We rebuilt the outside to look like a, a wildcat. And we can inject failures and we can inject system diagnostics into there to allow the maintenance engineers to actually work through the technical publication suite. Our construction on the training centre itself started around December 11. We completed it in January 13, and we've started populating um, equipments and pieces in there. Today, we have seven of the eight, eight classrooms fully populated with students that are going through. So uh, we've already got the drumbeat going for the regular training that's ongoing to populate both the Army and Navy squadrons. Courseware, I said about, we've got 64 different courses across the piece for all the different types of uh, courses that are already envisaged. We believe we'll probably, in the next two to three years, hit 100 courses where different role-playing is, as we develop the aircraft and develop the ways of uh, fighting the machine, we believe the courses will come back in and we'll do different role-plays within the synthetic environment. 
So a look at the Wildcat training devices. These were developed with our, one of our other suppliers, Pennant. And this is a concept we've got on the screen at the moment. Um, the, the airframe systems trainer is to do with the mechanical side of it. So we can take blades off, engines out, gearboxes out. Um, we can work with the hydraulic systems. So all the mechanical functionality is within the, the airframe. And the cockpit is designed for the air, uh, maintainers to go in there and look at what they would need to do as part of that diagnostic systems. And that's the actual element. So that was a concept on one side, and that's the actual item there that we're, we're using. So much so that we've now got some upgrades going on to the aircraft. So we've, we've actually taken this one away, and we've actually got a real aircraft to actually do our diagnostics on while we're waiting because it's so intrinsic now as part of the training that we've, we've built in how we do the training so much into the courseware that they'll teach something in the classroom, walk down and do the bit on the aircraft and then come back to the classroom again. So we've had to actually get a real aircraft um, and the MOD of Lent is a real aircraft while that bit of kit is being away, being upgraded to the latest modification standard. Likewise, for the avionic trainer, this was our concept. We didn't need nearly mechanical stuff, but we could load up weapons. We could have a full avionic cockpit, so we could take black boxes in and out and do the testing functionality within the, the airframe. However, again, we took another Mark III, developed it, and that, that is the actual real item that we've got there. And when that one goes away for an upgrade in... Um, June time, we're actually fitting it out so we can actually load real weapons to it um, so we can actually take it to the next level for the weapons people. We don't need it at the moment because we're only training the avionics people. They're not actually fighting it as a real aircraft at the moment. So that's our next step in June where we take it to the, for the maintenance engineers to be able to load weapons. I talk about the synthetic training devices. Um, we can connect the two of them together. Once we've got through this phase where we've got FMS 1 at one standard, the flight motion simulator at the, at the second standard, once we've completed that on May the 11th, got the tick in the box, we'll take it number one offline and bring that up to the same level. At that point, we should be able to then fly sorties together between the two of them um, to allow Glenn's team to be able to do um, sorties together in the air. Our next step after that, towards the end of this year, is to put in a link so we can do outside facility work, so we can link to other simulators in the future. Although that standard has still not been set of which facilities they want us to link to at the moment. So it's just going down, drilling down to the next level down on the simulator. Um, we've got really realistic scenarios based in the in there. I said about the Sea State 6, even down to the fact that as you try to fly over the, the ship, we have the waves breaking over the back of the ship or off the side of the ship, and it looks like the waves are coming at you. Two weeks ago, we had some um, students from Augusta Westland in there who've actually flown a real aircraft, but actually got so immersed in the aircraft and the, how it was flying that when they eventually crashed the aircraft in a synthetic model. Um, 
one of, one of the ladies actually screamed as she realised she was going to um, fly into the sea. And uh, as this wave was, wall of water was coming towards her. Um, if I talk about the um, field of view for the projectors, every single window that you look out of, unlike in some other simulators, every single view that you look out of has got something to show you where you are in relationship in the contextual where you are in the air, over the sea, um, or over the land. So you, it's if you're exactly in the real aircraft. Um, it re, you really do get sucked in. I had my senior vice president of training and customer support flying it this morning, um, the simulator, and he got so engrossed, he's an ex-helicopter pilot from the RAF, he got so engrossed in it that when he came to land on, he says his hands were really... He did not want to crash it because he really felt like he was flying a real aircraft. Um, it is a high level of immersion. We do get people who get sucked in really well into it. If I say we have a motion system, but we also have the seats that vibrate as well in tune with that motion system. So it is a pretty complex bit of kit. If we fly the aircraft, we're actually flying as if it's... You, if you want to log it in your logbook, it's actually equivalent of a level D simulator in the civil world. But then we have all this extra bit of kit that we've got on for the military expansion, for the radars and the uh, defensive aid suites and the fighting capability of the machine. So it's taking it to the next level. So if I talk about some of the synthetic models, the big ship there that is shown up on the screen, Indra have modelled down below the waterline. So if you're in a high sea state and your screws come out of the water, you see them on the picture. Um, you see the underside of the aircraft if you get another aircraft fly alongside you. The picture there is not a photograph. That's a digital picture that's within the model of our Royal Naval Air Station Yeovilton. That's just a digital, digital image that they've got within the, the frame. And we've got Type 45s in there. We have roads. We have vehicles travelling along the roads. So we have a whole host of things within that synthetic model. Much like any training capability, you've got the fidelity. Always bring it down to the lowest level that you can on emulations, then into the cockpit trainer before you take it into the final bit, into the simulator itself. Our courseware that's on the screens, I said about we had um, eight classrooms. We've got seven of them running at the moment. We have a number of different desktop emulations. And if I just read across the top there, you've got the maps, you've got the tactical display, you've got the radar display, and the display unit that you actually input all your data from. If I take you back to when the Merlin first came into service, we had some of our pilot brethren, when they were flying the Merlin, who had, because there was so much information in the cockpit, had both heads inside the cockpit um, when they were flying along. And it was only the staff members stood behind them that was looking out of the window. And when we did the initial training with Merlin, we had lots of people with their heads in the cockpit and we had to remind them, one person's head in, one person's head out, to make sure you're still flying the aircraft out, visual, visual view. We're learning the same thing on this particular aircraft. There's lots of information for the pilots and the TACO to actually get the heads involved inside the cockpit. And they must keep looking outside of the cockpit as part of that um, flying motion. Just a bit about the Wildcat Training Centre. It is a big building. We have got 12 briefing rooms. We have got eight classrooms. 
We've got two big similar heater halls. One is a hangar for the maintenance equipment. One's a hangar for the um, simulator equipment. Uh, we have three crew rooms. And we've got a load of instructors in there, both military and civilian. And that's just another picture of it. And that, the classroom on the top there, we have eight classrooms like that. The desks for the students, the screens go up and down. So the, the instructor at the front can take charge, take all the classroom um, screens down, can teach in a normal way. When he wants them to do emulations, he presses the button and they all come to the top. They can play with their emulations, he takes charge and takes them all back down again. So he, he has full control at the front. And that's just another picture saying that there are all our equipments in place. So we've got a Wildcat training service. I said we were a part of the integrated operational service. We're open for 50 weeks of the year. Um, Monday to Friday from 6 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. Um, that's when we're open from. Um, but we only actually have our equipment up and fired between 7 and 9 o'clock. We can go outside at them times if we need to. Um, we haven't got any third-party generation on this particular facility. I'm not saying we can't do in the future. Um, the Koreans have bought the 159. They're already talking to us about taking, taking some time on it. But we don't have that in our programme at the moment. We have, As I said, we have a civilian and military mix within the building. But all of our civilian instructors, because we have this requirement to do the military ethos, are mostly ex-military. In fact, 100% ex-military training personnel at the moment. So what's the future look for us? Glenn was talking about 40 years. That's how long the links has been in. 30 to 40 years, we believe the Wildcat will be in. But we need to keep in step with the aircraft modifications. So we need to keep that, that rolling program going for that aircraft modification loop. I was talking to Glenn on Friday. We haven't even fully got both simulators up and running yet. But Glenn's already talking to me about we want to do more mission rehearsal. We want to take that and push the boundaries on that role, role playing to make it work better for us before he takes his guys to sea. We already know there's going to be a future um, anti-surface guided weapon system that's coming onto um, the Wildcat. We're already planning how we're going to take that into the environment and put that into the synthetic world and how we're going to we're going to make that work from a training perspective. We know that the MOD have got the Merlin um, new Mark IV simulator coming online in the next two to three years. They're already talking to us about putting a fibre optic link between the Wildcat training centre and the Merlin Mark IV centre that's on the base. So they're already, they're, it's not a concept. This is what they're talking about to us already. So we know we're going to be talking to them as a facility. To, so the Mark IV community and the Wildcat community can play together. So I could say, so what? We're an integrated component of the WIST, um, but we don't have any commercial boundaries that we get hung up about, as other training providers would do if we sit outside of the, the main aircraft programme. We do get sight of all the engineering changes. We had an engineering problem in the aircraft, in the morning, that afternoon, we were being briefed. Our team was being briefed out at the training centre. The following morning, the courseware was trained, changed. And that afternoon, so 
Within 24 hours, we were already teaching the students of the problem that they had and how we can overcome it. So we're, it's a, we've got a pretty quick transition time to, to take anything forward. We can provide data. One of, our, one of our reasons for bringing this up is our engineering team had an emulator. We thought it would be good for the students. We did a quick change for it from the front end. A week later, it was in the training centre to be delivered as part of the package. We don't, ha we don't have any hang-ups about um, the commercial aspects of it. We're just trying to make this work to make the best product coming forward. Although it was designed by us, we still have to... I keep going back to this military ethos. We have to make sure that we don't get away, that we become, don't become com too commercialised and when we keep that military ethos as we go forward, but still keep that learning environment there. We, as the Prime on behalf of the MOD, believe we've got the most complete aviation training equipment at the moment because we do have the level D simulator from a civil, as, as you would from a civil perspective, but we've got all these add-ons that we've got in the role to fight the particular aircraft. It is complex, it, it's not been without its challenges, and we're still developing quite a few of them systems because some of the systems are only still being developed for the aircraft. So we're in this constant learning loop and we were having a meeting with Indra this morning of how we would take that forward down in Yeovilton. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes mine and Glenn's presentation. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.